The title of this morning's message is Faith Filled in Every Circumstance. Today, as we look into the 11th chapter of Hebrews, we will see that in every situation in our life, we can be faith-filled by our Heavenly Father and our Jesus. They are the persuaders of our heart. When our hearts are fully persuaded of the truth of God's word to us, then faith will rise up and take a hold of what our Father and our Jesus have promised to us. But the promise must first be a settled issue in our hearts as a finished work of God's grace. Our faith can only take a hold of what has already been provided for us. You can't ask God to give you, you know, somebody else's wife or <laughs> somebody else's car. <laughs> has to be part of what's appropriate. <laughs> but when the word of faith movement came along, a lot of people tried doing that kind of thing. Everything for life and godliness is yours. Well, that means I can have what belongs to you. No, no, that doesn't mean that. <laughs> you have to ask according and believe according to the word of God. Our faith can only take what has been provided by our Father's grace, his absolutely free loving kindness. We can't earn our Father's grace and goodness. We can only access his grace with the faith that he supplies for us. His grace allows us to access by faith, the faith that he gives us, the spiritual realm and all of the realities that it holds. And we can see this reality in chapter 11 of Hebrews, beginning with verse 32. I have it for you in the Passion Translation. And what more could I say to convince you? For there is not enough time to tell you of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Now, what exactly was the author of Hebrews trying to convince his readers of? I believe he's trying to convince them that it's only faith in God that pleases God. Not animal sacrifice, not law-keeping, and not perfect performance. Only faith, only trust in God, pleases God. Because as we step out in faith and do what our Father wants us to do, He is enabled to supply us with everything we need for life and godliness in the natural realm. He's already provided it for us in the spiritual realm. But we can only bring it into the natural realm by faith and trust. Faith is God's part. Most believers think that that's our part. <laughs> that we have to make confidence in God, that we have to do the persuading of our own heart. It doesn't work. I tried it for years. God persuades our heart. He uses his word. It's his favorite thing to do is to cause us to hear what he's saying to us in the moment. He speaks by his spirit and he speaks by his written word. And that's what persuades our heart. So faith is God's part. He is the one that gives us faith. Faith happens in our heart when he persuades our hearts to believe the truths of God and his word to us. Faith doesn't happen because we ask for faith. Have you tried that one? <laughs> give me faith, Jesus, give me faith. <laughs> read the word, girl, read the word. <laughs> it will just happen. <laughs> So faith doesn't happen in us because we ask for faith. Faith happens when we seek him 
and he reveals himself and his truths and his strategies to us. And once we embrace what he reveals to us, then we must choose to step out and trust him and act in accordance with that specific truth. The Hebrew baby believers of the new covenant had all their life gone to temple, brought animal sacrifices, and attempted to be perfect in all of their ways according to the law. But doing all of that never made them spiritually perfect or righteous. Even under the law, righteousness or right standing with God was always a matter of faith. A matter of taking God at his word and then acting on that word. Bringing a lamb for sacrifice without actually trusting God for forgiveness and righteousness accomplished nothing. You're just out of lamb. <laughs> Only faith and trust in God can access what he's already provided by his grace. Faith in what we do can never access what God has provided by his grace. Dumb to have faith in your own self. <laughs> it is casting all of your care upon him, for he cares for you. Again, I really like the story of Naaman in the Old Covenant because it's just so fitting <laughs> for most of us. <laughs> Naaman was a Gentile and a high-ranking commander in the Syrian army, and he came to see Elisha the prophet in order to be healed of leprosy because no other so-called God that he was ever able to come in contact with or worship could heal him. There was no deliverance from the sickness apart from the God of Israel. But he had expectations of how this healing would work. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> he figured that the prophet in Israel would simply wave his hand over the spots and pray a little prayer and make the leprosy leave. He didn't figure on having to participate in the manifesting of the miracle by acting on his faith. And to make matters worse, the prophet wouldn't even come to the door. <laughs> he had his servant tell him to go wash in the Jordan River. Now, Naaman was highly offended at this because he was pretty sure he was fairly important. <laughs> and he saw no reason to be dealing with a servant of a prophet, much less go have to wash in a dirty river. What's wrong with these people? <laughs> His problem was that he didn't understand that he had to operate in faith, too. He had to have confidence in God's word to him through the prophet's servant in order to take a hold of what God had already provided for him by his grace. So Naaman initially left without his healing. Can you say, stupid? <laughs> His pride had talked him out of receiving what he came for. But thankfully, God is merciful, and he used a young servant girl to show him how ridiculous that was. Leaving without your healing, really? <laughs> After all, if the prophet had given him something hard to do in order to manifest his healing, he would have been glad to do it. Because his pride in his own goodness and importance would have been bolstered even more. See, I earned it by doing something hard. 
But now, in order to receive this grace of healing, he had to humble himself and put no confidence in his own position, merit, or importance. He had to understand that he could not merit this gift in any way. His healing was a gift of God's grace, and it could only be received by faith in the mercy and goodness of Yahweh God. And when this light dawned on him, the light of this truth, he chose to submit himself to God's word to him. Why can't you do an easy thing to get healed? Because it is offensive to us to try to do something easy in order to manifest our healing because we think we're trying to earn it or work for it, and we're not. God's trying to get us to participate in the miracle by acting on our faith. So he eventually went and washed in the dirty Jordan, and he received the grace of healing by faith in Yahweh alone. No faith in the dunking. <laughs> he had to dunk seven times. <laughs> dunking didn't heal him. Grace healed him. I think it's really funny that God made him do it seven times. <laughs> Get rid of that pride. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> How many times do you need to do this before you realize it's all about him and not about what you do? If he believed that Yahweh could heal him, then he needed to submit to the way Yahweh God chose to heal him. And that was by Naaman acting on his faith in Yahweh's word to him through the prophet. Much of Old Covenant Israel lived with a mindset similar to Naaman's. They assumed that God's grace could be bought by doing the so-called right things. So many treated God like he was a stingy bill collector who just wanted more and more lambs for himself instead of treating Yahweh like a faithful and loving father who had graciously supplied them with a way to get out from under the power of the curse of the law by acting on their faith. Their faith in God's goodness and kindness and in his word to them. If God could get them to believe and to trust in his word to them, then there was no limit to what they could access by acting on their faith in Yahweh and his word. Continuing in verse 33, Hebrews eleven thirty-three, Through faith's power, they conquered kingdoms and established true justice. Their faith fastened onto their promises and pulled them into reality. I love the sentence that's highlighted for you. Again, it says, their faith fastened onto the promises and pulled them into reality. That's a great example because faith takes. It takes what God has provided, and it perseveres by refusing to let go of what God has promised. The Greek word for this kind of taking or receiving is lambano. I have it for you in the Strong's, and it's usually translated received, which to our ears sounds very passive. But it actually means to take a hold of and to keep possession of. Kind of like a football player who has received a pass from his quarterback, and he hangs onto that ball as tight as he can while resisting <laughs> the other team's players who are trying to take the ball away from him. And then he runs into the end zone. He does not stop resisting the other team's players until he manifests the goal. And that's what we do with our faith. 
We refuse to let go of what God has already provided for us in the spiritual realm through his goodness and kindness. The Strong's for received is lambano, and it means to take. <laughs> Literally and figuratively, it means to get a hold of and to keep possession of. The Strong's also tells us what it's not. He says there's another word that's translated uh, received. It is passive. It is subjective or passive. It means to have offered to. That's not what we do. <laughs> it's not like hors d'oeuvres are going to just jump into your mouth without you taking one. <laughs> but sometimes Christians have this kind of mindset that they don't do anything when we do have to participate by faith. Many Christians pray from a place of passivity, believing that God will do whatever God will do, and it's all up to him. So they ask for healing, not knowing in their heart that it is already theirs for the taking. God isn't simply offering us healing or anything else that we need. He has already provided for it in the spiritual realm. But many Christians don't know that that's the truth of the gospel. God the Father has already provided everything we need for life and godliness through the finished work of the cross. So they pray passively, and then they wait. <laughs> when are you going to wave your hand over the spot, Jesus? Come on. <laughs> they think it's all up to him. He already did it all. He already provided it all. And now it's our turn to take what he has provided. We don't get saved by saying, if you want to save me, you go ahead. <laughs> that won't get you anywhere. <laughs> we have to be persuaded that he wants this salvation for us. We have to be persuaded that he wants us well. We have to be persuaded that he wants to take care of everything for us. But we need to understand that we have to participate. We have to act on our faith in order to pull what is promised out of the spiritual realm and into the natural realm. But if we don't actually have faith for healing or for the things we need, in other words, if our heart isn't actually convinced that healing and everything else is already provided for us, then we won't take it. <laughs> the majority of Christians pray this way. It is the God, if it be your will. Well, we already know his will. His will is that we should have everything we need for life and godliness through the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't understand that that is not faith. That's not confidence that I have what he says I have, and I am what he says I am. He needs us to participate. If we don't understand this, then we'll just let that football fall to the ground. Can't you just see Jesus throwing us things? Here, here's your healing. And we go, <laughs> and watch it pass us over. We don't catch it. We don't take it. And this is what Christians are doing because they don't know they need to. We have to believe that it's ours already before it's going to manifest. And then just like a football player, after we catch it and we're holding it really tight and we say, I know this is mine, you said so, then there are all those um, other players on the field trying to take it away from us. You know, fear, doubt, unbelief. <laughs> telling us to let go, telling us it's too hard, <laughs> telling us we can't do this. No, that's not God's will. He probably wants you sick. He wants to teach you something. 
Or maybe you earned it. Maybe you earned sickness. Maybe you should just keep it. <laughs> it's ridiculous. If we want to get to the end zone, which is the manifestation of what is already ours in Christ, we have to persevere in faith. We have to continue to keep our eyes on Christ and what he has done. And sometimes believers are already in the end zone, so to speak, ready for full manifestation, completely convinced that what God says they have is theirs. And when they simply believe God's word regarding their promise, they catch the ball. I got it. I understand. This is real. That light goes on and says, I know I'm healed. Even if my body doesn't know it yet. <laughs> I know it yet. <laughs> That's faith. Faith takes hold of what is real in the spirit before we see it manifest in the physical. They catch the ball by doing what God tells them to do, and then they manifest the touchdown. Yay, God! <laughs> this is what he wants for us. But if we don't know that, then we'll just keep watching those footballs fly by not catching any of them <laughs> and thinking that there's something wrong with God or there's something wrong with us. And of course, Satan will be right there, kind of talk us out of what we already have. And that's because he has no power to stop us from receiving and manifesting our healing or any other promise of God. Satan has no power to take. Taking is our job. <laughs> Satan doesn't have any power to take our healing or any other promise away from us, which is why he has to convince us to go along with him. He has to convince us to believe the lies, that we don't have enough faith. He has to convince us that God has somehow failed to answer our prayer or failed to provide what we believed for. Both of which are lies. And we can see this truth in Matthew chapter 7, verses 17 through 11. I have it for you in the ESV. This is Jesus speaking. He said, ask, and it will be given to you. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> All I got to do is ask? Well, he told us somewhere else. We also have to believe we receive when we pray. But he says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks in faith receives. And the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. The word receives in this verse is lambano, and it means takes. And we have to have that mindset that when we come, I'm coming to get what you've promised. I'm not going to wait for you to make up your mind whether or not you're going to heal me, because he already has decided that. I'm not going to wait to see if he's going to provide for me. He's already decided that. He's already provided that. But so many Christians are waiting for God to make decisions regarding what's good for them, and they just stand back and do nothing. And then they're disappointed when they get nothing. <laughs> Verse 9, which one of you, if he has a son, asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This, of course, is not written to us, but for us. He's talking to the Jews. They were not born-again believers. 
So when he says, those who are evil, this is really a poor translation of the word. According to the Thayer's lexicon, this word evil means to be full of labors, annoyances, and hardships. It means to be pressed and harassed by labors. Does that sound like wickedness? No, it sounds like life. <laughs> life is full of labors and annoyances and hardships. And if we're trying to handle it all in our own strength, yeah, he says that that's evil. That's not good for us. <laughs> but that's the point. We're going to our Father. Not some God far away who doesn't know our name or how many hairs are on our head. <laughs> he can multiply the hairs on our head. <laughs> so he loves us. That's the whole point. He loves us. He loves to do us good. God never plans evil, any kind of evil, for his children. There's enough in this world to go around. <laughs> But when we believe the truth regarding God's good and perfect character and the truth of his written and spoken word to us, then we can choose to act on that truth with all of our confidence in our Father's goodness, kindness, and truthfulness. And not in our own abilities or our own goodness or even in our own faith and obedience. I loved the Word of Faith movement because they put such emphasis on the word of God, because God will speak to you through your word. If you make the word a priority, God will talk. <laughs> he will lead you and guide you through his word. He loves to do that. He knows that's exactly what we need. More than anything else in the world, we need to hear God. And we need to hear him all of the time. That's where faith comes from. But a lot of times people want to get into the well, they have great faith, and you only have little faith, and maybe you didn't get what you wanted because you didn't have enough faith. You don't see that in the gospel. We all have the same measure of faith. And he's the one. God is the one who operates that faith. When we give him our time, we give him our attention, he will persuade our hearts to believe the truth. And it's believing the truth that brings forth the power of faith. Our faith and confidence is not in our own actions, our own goodness. Just like Naaman couldn't earn it. But our faith is in our Father and his faithfulness and his goodness. But believing God, believing what he reveals to us, will always result in our acting on what our Father and our Jesus has revealed to us. And acting on our faith in God will literally pull on what is already ours in the spiritual realm and bring it into manifestation in the physical realm. This is how faith works. Nothing will be impossible for us who believe. And we can see this truth in the last sentence of verse 33 and in the following verse as well, in the Passion Translation, 1133b. It was faith that shut the mouth of the lions. One of the most famous stories in the Bible is the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel was honest and loyal, both to God in heaven and to his king on earth. Daniel had been taken captive and shipped off to Babylon, <laughs> but he was good stock, so to speak. So they chose those who were of good stock to have various important positions in the kingdom. 
God had given Daniel favor with King Darius of Babylon because of his ability to receive interpretation of dreams from God. And this favor also resulted in Daniel being elevated to one of the highest places in the king's government. But this favor from the king was not appreciated by those who were overlooked (laughs) regarding that particular promotion. (laughs) And those who were overlooked set out to destroy Daniel because of their own jealousy and envy. But these troublemakers soon found that it was impossible to find anything, any kind of wrongdoing done by Daniel, whereby they could accuse him to the king. It's like, doesn't this guy do anything wrong? (laughs) So they figured that they would have to somehow make something that Daniel was already doing illegal. So they tricked the king into making the practicing of Daniel's faith illegal. Kind of like when they tried to tell us we couldn't sing in church. That's now illegal. (laughs) And this is exactly what happened to the Hebrew baby believers under the new covenant. There were many prominent unbelieving Jews who had the ear of Caesar Nero. And it was those jealous and envious men who were persuading their king to make Christianity illegal and even punishable by death. How do you get rid of those Christians? Find a way to make their faith illegal. But even that did not stop the spread or the practice of faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because Daniel was indeed guilty of being faithful to his God, (laughs) he was sentenced to being thrown in the lion's den, even though it was not what the king wanted. The king had been tricked into making an irrevocable law against anyone worshiping or praying to anyone other than the king himself which he very quickly became sorry for. The king knew how faithful Daniel had been to his God and how the God of Daniel sought to convince the king of the reality of the one true and living God, the God of Israel. And the king recognized that Daniel's God had revealed the reality of his existence and power through Daniel and his dream interpretations. And the king himself even sought God's miraculous interventions on behalf of Daniel with prayer and fasting all night long while Daniel was in the lion's den. That sounds like a man who's going to soon be converted if he's not already. (laughs) And because Daniel had trusted Yahweh God to keep him safe, Yahweh God sent an angel to close the mouths of the lions. This miraculous deliverance caused the king to make a royal decree regarding Daniel's God. And we can see this in Daniel chapter 6, verse 26. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. So, what these evil men meant for harm God was able to turn for good through Daniel's faith. Daniel trusted his God and acted on what God had revealed to him. Even when it didn't look like things were going to work out for him, (laughs) he still trusted in his great I am. Now, Daniel was arrested for praying to Yahweh three times a day. His troublemakers knew that he was always talking to God. And that God was always talking back. (laughs) Imagine that. (laughs) And it's hearing God for ourselves that persuades our hearts to trust him. 
when nothing in the natural realm can do that. It looks totally wrong. Daniel was a perfect example of what the Hebrew baby believers needed to do in order to be full of faith in the midst of their adversity and persecution. They needed to practice hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit on a continual basis and to make the decision that they were going to trust in God their Father and Jesus their Savior, no matter what the circumstances looked like. Jesus had already told them about the judgment coming upon Jerusalem and the unbelieving Jews, and he told them what they were to do. When it began to show up, which was they were supposed to run to the mountains when they saw that they were surrounded by armies. But they had to choose to believe the words of Jesus and then act on them. They couldn't just stand around in Jerusalem waiting for God to pick them up and move them. (laughs) They had to cooperate. In faith, knowing God is good. And God says, I have salvation for you. I have a a miracle for you. And I need you to participate. (laughs) They had to be confident that what Jesus had promised them was really real and was going to happen. They had a physical salvation as well as a spiritual salvation. And God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So really, all they had to do was to catch the football and run for the end zone. (laughs) I believe you. I got it. It's mine. I'm running for the manifestation. Running to those mountains. I got it. Yay, touchdown. (laughs) But see, that's the hardest part is believing I already have it. Believing that every promise is yes and amen in Christ Jesus. That he's not withholding any good thing. He's a good, good father. That's the hard part. To change our mind, to understand that that's how we operate in the kingdom of God. Knowing we've already got it. And that God does have a strategy. When a football player catches that ball, he has to decide instantly how he's going to run that. (laughs) He has a strategy. God has a strategy for us so that we can manifest what he's already promised. He will reveal it sometimes in an instant. You just know that you know what it is you're supposed to do. That light comes on and you know you've got it. And you can start dancing before you get to the end zone. They simply had to believe that they had already received their salvation by faith and that it was really a finished work, even though they couldn't see it yet. But then they had to act on their faith by simply doing what Jesus told them to do, run to the end zone. All the while holding on to the promise as tightly as a football player holds on to the football when he's received it and then resisting all the other team's players of fear, doubt, and unbelief who are trying to steal your football (laughs) and your promise and your goal. (laughs) And the good news is that for the Hebrew baby believers, they did it. The Hebrew baby believers did not give up on the promises God had given them through the Lord Jesus. They remained faith-filled 
and their faith in Jesus brought forth the manifestation of the promise. They made the touchdown. They made the goal. They simply did what God told them to do. He brings forth the manifestation when we do what he tells us to do. What they believed God had already given them in the spirit was made manifest in the natural by simply doing what God told them to do. Verse 34. And this first part is a repeat of what is in the previous verse, but it's a continuation. It was faith that put out the power of the raging fire. I love the way this sentence is worded. It does not say that faith put the fire out. It says that their faith took the power out of the fire. So the fire couldn't burn or harm those who went into the fire. And sounds to me like the author is talking about the deliverance of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God didn't put out the fire. Instead, he made it so the fire couldn't hurt or harm them. Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had told King Nebuchadnezzar that they would not bow down and worship his statue, no matter what the king did to them. Again, this heathen king made it illegal for the Hebrews to not worship a pagan king, which is exactly what Nero did to the Hebrew baby believers. Nero demanded that everyone offer a monetary offering of worship to a statue of himself in order for them to be able to enter into the food markets to buy and sell. So those who submitted to this received a mark of ash either on their hand or their forehead. This mark was like a stamp received at a theme park. It shows everyone in authority that you have paid the necessary admittance fee. <laughs> but those who worshiped Christ refused to bow down to a statue of Nero or to offer a quote-unquote offering of worship monetarily. So they were denied access to the markets, and thus they could not buy and sell. Now most of us, we'd go, well, this isn't going to work, Jesus. <laughs> I'm going to have to do this <laughs> just so we can feed the kids. <laughs> but God, God somehow made a way where there was no way. God often moved on the hearts of unbelieving Jews who were sort of exempt from this demand. And he also would often move on the hearts of Gentiles to help the Christians obtain food. In other words, God couldn't put out the fiery persecution just yet, but he could still work miracles in the midst of it. They didn't have to be burned or harmed by the fiery persecution. But believers needed to continue to believe in and trust in Jesus as their salvation in every circumstance, and not to try to save themselves through their own abilities by either giving in to Nero's demands or by going back into Judaism. They needed to remain full of faith in the power and goodness of God their Father and Jesus their Savior. Continuing in verse 34. And caused many to escape certain death by the sword. In their weakness, their faith imparted power to make them strong. Faith sparked courage within them, and they became mighty warriors in battle, pulling armies from another realm into the battle array. Just like with Joshua. Jesus shows up, pre-incarnate Christ. He says, who are you fighting for? Them or us? He says, neither. What? <laughs> ah, he's fighting for Yahweh on behalf of Israel. 
He was fighting for them, but not directly. They needed to know that Yahweh God was their focus, not their physical enemies. So I love that, pulling armies from another realm into the battle array. Lord of hosts has so many angels that fight and interfere and do battle on our behalf even now. Verse 35. Faith-filled women saw their dead children raised in resurrection power. These women believed in the power of resurrection from the dead, and they believed wholeheartedly that God would do this for them and their children. In 1 Kings chapter 17, the widow of Zarephath compels the prophet Elijah to raise her son from the dead. And he does. And in 2 Kings chapter 4, the Shunammite woman who had befriended the prophet Elisha fully expected Elisha to raise her son from the dead. And he does. Another touchdown (laughs) for Team Yahweh. (laughs) These women would not give up. I'm going to have my child brought back. I believe God wants it and will do it. And he'll do it through these prophets. So they didn't give up. They caught the truth and they ran for the end zone until they got what they believed for. But then suddenly there was an uncomfortable shift in the author's narrative. We love conquering and overcoming. We love those scriptures because that is the majority of our life. But there's a truth we sometimes try to avoid. (laughs) The narrative goes from one of faith that empowers believers to conquer and overcome to faith that empowers believers to endure suffering, persecution, and even death. Continuing verse 35. Yet it was faith that enabled others to endure great atrocities. It was their faith and confidence in God that took a hold of God's grace, God's divine enablement, which gave them the ability to endure difficulty, great difficulty, gracefully. They were stretched out on a wheel and tortured and did not deny their faith in order to be freed because they longed for a more honorable and glorious resurrection. I think this mostly speaks of the persecution of the Old Testament prophets who were persecuted by both unfaithful Israelites who would not listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and by other governmental enemies who wanted to take dominion over Israel. Even Jesus reminded the faithless Jews of his day of how powerful and faithless Israelites persecuted those who were made righteous by faith alone in Yahweh. The unrighteous always seem to find a way to persecute the righteous. And this better resurrection that he's talking about is most likely referring to the spiritual resurrection we received under the new covenant when we became new creations. We are spiritually baptized into the death of Christ and then instantly raised to new life in Christ as a new creation. But the old covenant believers could not have that until Jesus came and died and rose from the grave. They had faith. They were made righteous by faith, but they did not have what we have. Years ago, as a baby Christian, I found that there was no shortage of scary preachers (laughs) who would threaten my loss of salvation if I was ever tortured into, quote-unquote, renouncing my faith in Jesus. Now, I knew I did not have the strength in myself to die on behalf of Christ. And 
as I eventually found out, I didn't need to have the strength to do that because the only way I would actually be able to do that would be if my Jesus gave me the grace, the divine enablement to do that. It would not be my strength. It would be his. And all the glory would be his. And that's the point. And I couldn't actually renounce my Jesus anyway. <laughs> because he's one with me. <laughs> and when you renounce someone, that means you have to stop associating with them. <laughs> and I can't stop associating with him because I'm one with him. <laughs> so I'd have to find a way to stop associating with myself, which is stupid. <laughs> it's not even possible. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea of torturing people to the point that they will lie to you to get you to stop hurting them is stupid. That is what happens. If you hurt someone long enough, they may give in to the temptation of telling you what you want to hear just to make you stop. And it's not a renunciation in any way, shape, or form. So it really is pointless. <laughs> So the author of Hebrews is simply reminding the Hebrew baby believers that the unfaithful, unbelieving Jews of their day were doing the same things their unfaithful, unbelieving forefathers had done. And that there was no shame on them if they suffered and died in the same faith that they lived by, just like the apostles. It was a very common Jewish belief that if something bad happened to you, you must have caused it or at least you must have deserved it. <laughs> but there was a certain amount of shame that came upon believers who were being persecuted. If I'm doing the right thing, why am I, why am I hurting? If I'm doing the right thing, if Jesus really is the Messiah, why isn't everything peachy? <laughs> and they didn't understand. They just didn't understand. I think these next few verses are meant to show them that there is absolutely no reason to accept shame from being persecuted or from having bad things happen to you. It takes faith to overcome, and it takes faith to endure. Verse 36. Others were mocked and experienced the most severe beating with whips, and they were in chains and imprisoned. Some of these faith champions, and I love that it calls them that, some of these faith champions were brutally killed by stoning, being sawn in two. That's the prophet Isaiah. He hid in a, a hollow log, and they found him, and the king said, get a saw. You're going to hide in a hollow? I'm going to open you up. And he killed him. And many were slaughtered by the sword. These lived in faith as they went about wearing goatskins and sheepskins for clothing. They lost everything they possessed. They endured great afflictions, and they were cruelly mistreated. They wandered in the earth, living in the desert wilderness, in caves, on barren mountains, and in holes in the earth. Truly, the world was not even worthy of them, not realizing who they were. They were God's personal representatives on the earth, the prophets in particular. 
they were especially mistreated because they were always speaking contrary to the false prophets and the religious elite who said, no, 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 as long as we have a temple, we're all good. God's happy with us as long as we have a temple. They were always going against the grain of the majority of, the country, of their countrymen who were self-righteous and unfaithful to Yahweh. And so it was for the Hebrew baby believers. They were God's true sons, his personal representatives to all people. But the majority of their countrymen stubbornly refused to believe in Jesus. And they chose instead to make the Hebrew baby believers their enemies and then sought their destruction at every turn. Reminds me of the Apostle Paul. (laughs) But just like their faithful forefathers, they were true heroes in the faith. They didn't compromise their faith in Christ in order to make their lives easier. Instead, they remained faith-filled and faithful through their ongoing personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Verse 39. These were the true heroes, commended for their faith, yet they lived in hope without receiving the fullness of what was promised to them. The fullness of what was promised is the spiritual realities of the new covenant made available through Jesus. I find that amazing. They didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit. They weren't one spirit with the living God, and yet they had the faith, the confidence to endure horrible hardship and mistreatment, and they never gave up. They knew their God. They knew their God. And we can see this truth in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 3. And to me, it almost sounds like Peter could be speaking directly to the Hebrew baby believers. <laughs> Starting with verse 3. Celebrate with praises the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has shown us his extravagant mercy. For his fountain of mercy has given us a new life. We are reborn to experience a living, energetic hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We are reborn into a perfect inheritance that can never perish, never be defiled, and never diminish. It is promised and preserved forever in the heavenly realm for you. Because Satan can't get it. (laughs) He can't take it. (laughs) We're the takers. Through faith, The mighty power of God constantly guards us until our full salvation is ready to be revealed at the last time. And I believe he's talking about their physical salvation from the coming judgment on unbelieving Israel. God was going to vindicate the faithful. Verse 6. May the thought of this cause you to jump for joy, even though lately you've had to put up with the griefs of many trials. But these things only reveal the sterling core of your faith, which is far more valuable than gold that perishes, for even gold is refined. Your authentic faith will result in even more praise, glory, and honor when Jesus, the Anointed One, is revealed. You love him passionately, although you did not see him. But through believing in him, you are saturated with an ecstatic joy, indescribably sublime and immersed in glory. 
for you are reaping the harvest of your faith. You are pulling stuff out of the spirit and bringing it into the natural. The full salvation promised you your soul's victory. And that doesn't mean just your spiritual salvation. A whole life has victory because it's already accomplished. Verse 10. This salvation was the focus of the prophets who prophesied that this outpouring of grace was destined for you. They made a careful search and investigation of the meaning of their God-given prophecies as they probed into the mysteries of who would fulfill them and the time period when it would all take place. The spirit of the anointed one was in them and was pointing prophetically to the sufferings that Christ was destined to suffer and the glories that would be released afterward. God revealed to the prophets that their ministry was not for their own benefit, but for yours. And now that you've heard these things from the evangelists who preached the gospel to you through the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, the gospel containing wonderful mysteries that even the angels long to get a glimpse of. In these verses, Peter sounds like he could be talking directly to the Hebrew baby believers, reminding them of this amazing grace, this new covenant, that by faith we can access everything we need for life and godliness by acting on his word to us. What we have under the new covenant is so much better than what the old covenant believers had. They couldn't enter into the Holy of Holies and come directly into our Father's presence. They didn't get to experience spiritual perfection and perfect righteousness. They didn't get to become one spirit with the living God, God the Father, in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. But the old covenant prophets knew that their ministries pointed to a greater reality that would one day be manifested through the coming Messiah. And they knew that they would not get to experience those realities during their lifetime. But that didn't keep them from living by faith in Yahweh God. I think that's a hard thing. To know what's coming ahead and knowing that you don't get to participate in that yet. But it didn't in in any way, shape, or form interrupt their faith. Hebrews 11.13 says this in the Passion. Those heroes all died still clinging to their faith, not even receiving all that had been promised them. But they saw beyond the horizon the fulfillment of the promises and gladly embraced it from afar. And they lived their lives on earth as those who belonged to another realm. They were still able to access what was in the spiritual realm, the kingdom of God, by faith. Even though physically they didn't get what we have, they would. And that's what they were rejoicing in. They knew God had a timing and a plan and a strategy, and it was going to work out according to his plan and strategy. And they were okay with that, because they knew that they would one day be walking into that. If they lived their lives as those who belonged to another realm, if they could do that, how much more can we? We live by faith from within the promised land of the new covenant. We live by faith from within the other realm. What we have is so much better. We now live from the inside of God. We live inside of him. He's not just inside of us. 
We are a wonderful God sandwich. <laughs> Jesus on the inside and Jesus on the outside. <laughs> I'm the creamy middle part. <laughs> what we have is so much better. We live from the inside of God. And God is always willing to persuade our hearts so that we can manifest the promises that he has made to us. The last verse of chapter 11, verse 40. But now God has invited us to live in something better than what they had. Faith's fullness. This is so that they could be brought to finished perfection alongside of us. Faith's fullness comes from our Father and our Jesus' faithfulness to their word. And they were completely faithful to their word for both the Old Covenant believers and for the Hebrew baby believers. The Old Covenant saints were brought into the same spiritual perfection and eternal life that we have after Jesus was raised from the dead. They saw their promises afar off. They knew they were real. They knew that one day they would walk into that promised land and everything would be different. I think the author of Hebrews was trying to encourage the Hebrew baby believers to believe that they weren't alone in their suffering. That suffering is not sent from God. If it was sent from God, then God would just leave you to suffer. <laughs> and he never does that. If we need to endure something hard, if we need to endure something that hurts, his grace his divine enablement, his divine power comes to work within us and to take us through. Thankfully, in America, it's unlikely that we will be killed for our faith, although they might tax us, <laughs> try to take away our religious freedoms. The evil men are still doing the same evil things. We have Christ. We have life and life more abundant. We have the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. We are never abandoned. We are never forgotten. We are never left to our own devices. Our Father lives in us. He upholds us. He brings us through. He gives us that encouragement when our knees start to wobble. <laughs> and we're like, I don't think I can walk on water today, Jesus. Yes, you can. Because I'm going to do it in you and through you. I have so enjoyed chapter 11. When the author says, I don't have time to tell you about all these other ones. <laughs> I thought, I think he might be right. <laughs> because it was like every message that we talked about, the people, the Hebrew baby believers always had a way to identify with what their forefathers went through and how they got through it all. They got through it all because God is bigger and better than anything else. He is the power. He is the hope. He is the glory. He is the fulfillment. He is everything we need for life and godliness. Amen? Father God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for these stories. We thank you, Father God, that we can see how the author of Hebrews knew exactly what to minister to his uh, congregation. 
<laughs> he knew what they were going through. He knew they needed to see that they weren't alone in their sufferings. He needed for them to know there was no shame in suffering for Christ. He needed to even let them know that there was even glory if they had to actually die for Christ. Even that would be by your power. You would take them through. And it wasn't anything hard for them going to heaven. Father God, we thank you that the truth of your word changes our heart, that you are so faithful to open our eyes to see the treasures that you've buried in your word. And certainly these Hebrew baby believers saw all of this, how you had given them pictures that they could go back to the picture book and see God's hand. Yes, there is evil in this world, but our God is greater. Yes, there is pain in this world, but our God is greater. And it won't always be that way. We won't always live in pain here on this earth. We thank you, Father God, that even in the midst of dying for Christ, so many, so many found your glory and could die joyfully, offering themselves completely to you, that you be glorified, that the gospel be confirmed as real. No man in his right mind would die for a lie. We would die for the truth if it came to that. Not in her own strength, but in yours. That others might know the reality of our Jesus and our Father. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Mark Testerman, Senior Pastor of Triumphant Grace Ministries. I want to say thank you for listening to the finished work gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that the good news found throughout the message has richly encouraged you in the love of the Father. Friends, this podcast is supported by the generous financial support of its listeners. And if today's message has ministered to you, then would you consider a gift that ministers back to us? You can text the word GIVE G-I-V-E to 833-632-1315 or you can visit triumphantgrace.com and donate through PayPal or credit card. The cornerstone scripture for Triumphant Grace Ministries is found in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Great grace, such grace, triumphant grace to you. God bless you.